Hello and welcome to The Global Insight. I'm Claudine Fry, a partner at Control Risks, heading up our Global Issues team. This edition of the podcast is going to focus on the Middle East, a region that has vastly changed and changing rapidly and with consequences which are reaching into the worlds of sport, culture, politics, energy and economics. What happens in the Middle East matters to us all and the role of the region plays in the geopolitical shocks of the future will be consequential. How is this region a microcosm of what's happening in the world more broadly in terms of evolving power dynamics in the context of a global rush to do business in the region and as relations with the West grow more precarious, what do businesses need to watch? To address these questions, I'm here with Neve McBurney, an Associate Director in our Middle East team based in Dubai. Lovely to have you. Welcome, Neve. Hi, Claudine. Thanks. Neve. I'm first of all going to ask if you can unpack for us the significance of some of the most important geopolitical developments that have taken place this year in the region and what they tell us about how the region is evolving. I'm thinking specifically of the Iran and Saudi deal that was agreed back in March to restore diplomatic relations unexpectedly and and seven years after they were severed. We've also had in April, Bahrain and Qatar restoring diplomatic relations, signalling a further improvement within the region of diplomatic relations with Qatar years after a boycott of the country by Bahrain, but also involving Saudi Arabia and the OE, which have also since restored their relationships with Qatar. And in May, we have Syria return to the Arab League, ending 13 years of its isolation triggered by a civil war, which of course is actually not yet resolved. So these sort of resumptions of diplomatic relations, this return of Syria to the Arab League, what's going on, Neve? Talk us through the significance of these developments and and, and what they tell us about how the region is evolving. The region is doing it for itself. There are a number of, of countries, of political leaders in the region who have either made more sophisticated their policies when it comes to engaging with other countries in the region um, or have pivoted entirely in how they perceive and then enact their own national foreign policies. And, And I'll be honest, this has put a number of Western allies slightly on the back foot. And I think the best example of this is the way that Saudi Arabia has pivoted over the last nine months in its in its foreign policy. In, in what it thinks about certain countries, you know, how it engages with them. You know, we'll we'll talk through these over the course of the next few minutes. But, you know, Russia, Israel, you know, and its relationship with the US in it in itself have have become quite different. And and really being in the region, that reflects a really long-held uncertainty about the US's position with regard to the region. What does the Middle East mean for the US? How much is America willing to not just protect its interests in a sort of forceful way, America's interests, but how how committed is it really to the interests of its allies? And and we've seen over the last 15 years um, a real a real awakening from, from countries in the region, the Saudi and the UAE in particular, Egypt as well, that they can't rely on the promises of of the US. That kind of realization has led to much more proactive and independent foreign policy positions. You know, the UAE, that combined with its its change in how it dealt with the region, it looking to focus on trade and economic relationships a couple of years ago, partly as a result of the impact of COVID, 
has seen that most clearly. And then also in Saudi Arabia, looking to take a really a role at the forefront of, of events like, you know, Russia, Ukraine, and, and, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, become a major honest broker, you know, in your, in your classical sense of the word is, is a role that it only historically, and, you know, that's thinking 30, 40 years back, that it would have done within select group of countries within the region. So, you know, these countries are using this opportunity, to change how they see themselves, and then, then go out and change how the world thinks about them in a really, really proactive way. And I think it's been a real moment of growth. Should we see this as a, a generational shift and one that is largely irreversible in terms of the Middle East now emerging as a very different and more coherent player on the global stage? We're definitely at the beginnings of that. The The question is whether the, the major players in the region can be consistent in how that they continue to implement this. And that is both how their own economies fare and how their own national politics fares, but then also the influences of outside. If we continue to see this fracturing of the relationship between the US and China, you know, Saudi and the UAE in particular, Qatar as well, are going to be able to continue to benefit from that. And, you know, that's very much the firm's position that we've got this kind of deep fracturing, you know, that we're seeing across across all our clients and across a wide range of sectors. And that is just deepening, you know, something that we highlighted risk map last year. And so, I mean, that's certainly the direction of travel that we're going in. And, um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting time. It's, it's whether they could be consistent on, on that foreign policy position ultimately and, yeah, and consolidate the role that they will come to have in shipping and energy and others. Let's focus on external influences on how the region is changing. There was a lot of speculation about China and the extent to which it did or did not have a significant role to play in the Iran-Saudi deal. What's your understanding about where China stood, what sort of role it played in, in producing that diplomatic agreement? And then more broadly, how is China positioning itself in Saudi and in the region more broadly? I, I, that was quite an interesting development because it took both us in the region and our colleagues in Beijing by surprise. That signing of the agreement that, that, that China hosted was the final step in a process that had been birthed from the region. It was a real surprise when, when that was announced. And I'll be honest, I think that was, you know, speaking to this kind of different expression of, of Saudi foreign policy that we're seeing, it was really the Saudi, but also the Iranians looking to give what is to each of them a really important economic partner, some credit and some recognition, and also make China feel like it's involved and it's got a got a bit of an invested a vested interest in this. Now China does have a very, very key vested interest in supporting much more peaceful ties between Saudi and Iran. It is a major buyer crude oil from the region and refined products. Technically, its uh, its Iranian barrel purchases are zero at the moment, although we do know that they are being relabeled to to be from other countries. But you know, up to twenty percent of the oil that it imports comes from the Gulf, and so making sure that we don't have a repeat of the nineteen eighties tanker war that the US did step in and, and try and mitigate, I mean, actually, it did very very successfully at the time. You know. Aside from protecting those economic interests, Iran, uh, sorry, China doesn't want to engage with the region militarily in the way that the US has. Its political ties are deepening. We saw that with the, the major conference in, in Saudi at the end of last year. And, and you can see that much more subtly in the UAE uh, and also Qatar in the way that the Chinese got involved in the construction industry and, and retail and hospitality and, and others. But, um, 
really it's about not replicating the the mistakes of the US and getting involved militarily in the region. You know, China has no interest to either. It doesn't, I mean, it does nominally have the resources, but it just doesn't care to. And so it's about deepening the relationships where it can for its own benefit. Saudi Arabia, in terms of, you know, a growth economy is, has huge potential over over the next 10 to 20 years. You know, that's a great interest to China where some arguments suggest that, you know, Chinese growth has stalled and, and we're not going to see a repeat of last 20 years and the next 20 years. So if you think from a Chinese company perspective, it's it's a huge and really quite reasonably wealthy consumer market for them to look to, to sell their products. And we're seeing a lot of interest from China, both in the kind of supply chain space. So thinking of things like petrochemicals and manufacturing, but also professional services, IT and others, fintech. And, and there's actually potential um, given on the interest that we've seen for, I think, Asian companies, you know, China, Japan, Korea, you know, some of their large conglomerates and also smaller ones that are more nimble to actually crowd out, you know, the, the Western brand names that we know so well in a lot of the tech and finance and consumer finance and, and other spaces. But it's really, an, it's really an economic play. It's a business opportunity for, for China. They're not seeking to replace the U.S. and um, and just briefly touching on on uh, you know U.S. policy again, um, you know the the Carter doctrine in the region persists of you know protecting its interests in the region because of the importance to to global trade and to global oil markets. You know twenty to twenty five percent at any one time of what we consume on a day to day basis of crude oil comes through the Persian Gulf and you know around the Arabian Peninsula. 30% of global container traffic goes through the Suez Canal. And, you know, the GCC states are constantly expanding their, their container port capacity in order to become the linchpin of the future, where not only are they looking to create more pathways for, for exports from, from China to the rest of the world, because if they were going to the US, they just go across the Pacific, but, but also to become the new manufacturing hubs themselves. So to both produce and then export goods from Saudi Arabia, from the UAE, and then also facilitate the, the growth of, of Africa as well, although that has been much slower, I think, than, than both the Gulf and, and Africa have had anticipated over the last 10 years. To what extent is the, the US relationship, particularly with Saudi, under a significant amount of strain these days, Neve? It has had a difficult couple of years. I think that's probably the polite way of putting it. Um, the view in in the region is is that the Biden administration has did mishandle the kind of first six months after the breakout of of the Ukraine conflict and the way that the administration effectively demanded that that Saudi Arabia change its majority revenue stream in order to suit U.S. interests was was not okay that I mean that was something that the US has, has done in the past and has failed. Unpack that for a bit a bit for us, Neve, those of us who may not have been following that as closely as you were. What was the Saudi position on Russia Ukraine initially and, and was it exactly that the US was having an issue with? As a key example of of this new foreign policy pivot, Saudi's been pretty neutral. Although it continues to have a strong political relationship with Russia to facilitate communications and policymaking on, on the oil market as part of Russia's membership of OPEC Plus and, and Saudi Arabia's leadership of, of OPEC and now really leadership of OPEC Plus as well because Russia's had to take a backseat because so much of its, of its production has come offline. It's that political relationship 
between Russia and Saudi Arabia that's really key to speak to some of the differences in the region, different policies towards Russia, depending on how politically close they are. The leaders, for example, the UAE has had a warmer relationship historically with Russia. There is an alignment of, of political values that underpins that relationship. And there is still a wariness of the consequences of that closeness. So, for example, the, the UAE has been reminded at very, very senior levels politically of of the risk of sanctions by um, by officials in the U.S. Treasury Department who you know visit here regularly. Saudi Arabia is is also concerned about their their the sanctions exposure, but they're not as immediately as affected because they haven't seen the the same influx of both Russian kind of you know money, whether that's cryptocurrency or or actual kind of cash assets, and then also visitors, new residents of Russians. But for Saudi, it's it's about maintaining that relationship to be able to continue to have that market management role as part of OPEC. It's something that, you know, continues continues to rile the US. But at the same time, America doesn't have a similar body where it can call together all its, you know, independent oil and gas producers, you know, particularly operating in the shale patch. You know, we saw at the beginning of COVID how how all of the major oil companies in the US refused to work together in order to try and create a more positive environment to push prices back up. OPEC took the flag for them. And that was the real lesson for Saudi Arabia that, look, the US now is, is operating as you know, its own independent, self-interested oil and gas producer and exporter. It's the world's single largest now. Whatever we say about OPEC, the US is an incredibly influential, has an incredibly influential role. And and yet for, you know, for, for Joe Biden to say so harshly, you know, what you're doing is against our interests and how dare you, uh, you know, was, was very, very poorly received here. And so they have started to patch things up over the last year. The we're seeing a lot more communication, you know, privately and publicly. That's leading to things like the open discussion of potential normalization with Israel, for example. And that's because the Biden administration realized they've made a really big mistake. And although there's a you know positive direction of travel that we have now, you know, we do have a presidential election next year, that is going to affect at least some of the topics up for discussion between the two sides and, and the overall tone. And it could also affect the implementation of closer ties as well. But I mean, one thing we haven't touched on yet is, you know, US is still the closest security partner of, of Saudi Arabia and of the UAE. It is still a major military and defense force in the region and will continue to be. Although now everyone's being a little bit more honest about why that is, and that's because it's in order to protect those interests I mentioned earlier. It's the global trade and it's to protect the price of the oil. And you can see a little, a little bit more honesty in, the, in those relationships now. And I think that's a really positive thing. I think that if we if we, if we now start to take the US's position in the region for, for what it is, rather than what it pretends to be, and for what it is, which is try and keep oil prices down for you know American consumers to buy their petrol cheaper or their gas cheaper, sorry, and then also preserve global trade flows. If we can all be honest about that, then it gives you know the US and and its regional partners a chance to, you know, improve the relationships again, make them more sophisticated on honest terms. And yet, some serious sources of disagreement there, and 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 such a brilliant example of middle powers asserting themselves on the global stage with the UAE and Saudi Arabia taking very different positions to the US on Russia-Ukraine, including in the case of the UAE at the UN. Let's dwell on Iran for a moment, Neve. Give us a sense of where we are with the nuclear agreement and if it indeed 
has any future at all. I know there are some significant dates coming up in the autumn, which could determine its future. The JCPOA is dead. That's actually been the firm's position, our position for quite a while since the end of end of last year. And the reason for that is because, you know, the status quo no longer exists, you know, within which the JCPOA was was agreed. You know, the US has left it, you know, nuclear enrichment has increased considerably. And and Iran has managed to very artfully, you know, circumvent sanctions in a in a reasonable way so that, you know, now quite a considerable amount of its oil is is back on the market. And at the same time, the US, although there have periodically been moments of where the US has it has increased its kind of sanctions evasion action to try and stop it it does appear that the us is is taking its foot off that pedal a little bit to create a little bit more space a little bit more goodwill to allow the talks such as they are to to continue um, the facts on the ground such as they were that that allowed the jcpoa to happen and also really for the negotiations as they restarted at, you know back in late 2021 to restart and then kind of came to an really came to an end in mid 2022 don't exist anymore. And so there have been there has been talk over the last couple of months of an understanding is is the phrase that's been thrown around. We've been suggesting for a while that a less for less deal is the most likely path forward where both sides would agree um any number of conditions in order to basically just keep talking, but also have something more substantive on the table. I don't expect a less for less deal would include things like the US lifting sanctions, because I think that's a bridge too far, particularly as we're entering, you know, campaigning season for, for the next presidential election. So Iran coming in from the cold? No, it's not happening. So it's happening in the Gulf. It is happening in the Gulf. And although obviously within the region, businesses and, and governments need to be very, very careful to make sure that they're not helping Iran evade sanctions. You know, the Gulf has a little bit of a history of that. And so there is like, there are really, there are moderately positive noises, I should say, that there's definitely like potential for, for Gulf investment into Iran. You know, there's huge potential there. It's a large consumer market. You know, both sides are really well placed to, to provide each other with things. I buy Iranian grapes and they're fabulous, for example, you know, because I'm allowed to. Uh, <laughs> no, it's it's not, it's not going to come into from the cold. I'm concerned that depending on the direction of travel of, of the US election, that what progress has been made in the last really couple of weeks, you know, we saw a release of, you know, five detainees, American national detainees in Iran under house arrest. Hopefully they will eventually be released to their families. Um, kind of counterbalanced by, you know, an escalation of US military and naval deployments in the region. There's definitely quite a lot more cat cat mouse going on, which can often signal that there's there's progress. Awareness of political, country, and economic risks underpin your organization's ability to protect value and mitigate shocks. Whether you need consulting on a particular project or longer-term strategic, analytical, and forecasting resources, we can respond to your requirements face-to-face or through our online platform-based solutions. For more information, follow the link in the podcast notes. To what extent can deeper, more diversified economies and trading relationships, what what impact will they have on the overall stability and security environment? That is an excellent question. And really, that is the main driver of all of this. It's the main countries in the region. And and then I include within that, you know, Turkey and, and Egypt, Qatar, Saudi, Oman and the UAE. They are they are doing this in order to preserve 
their economic gains of the last few years, and, and in Saudi Arabia's case in particular, to preserve the future that they wish to shape by implementing Vision 2030, their colossal economic diversification plan, which is going to completely reshape the economy and already is starting to. They need security and stability, political, diplomatic, regulatory will come later once they've actually got all the regulations in place in order to to have the economics gain gains persist. And so that's why they're doing this. What could put that under threat? Someone getting particularly angry at a unintentional diplomatic snub and then you know it all goes south again i mean we shouldn't underestimate the potential for 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 fickleness to to create you know things that that destabilize this this again how far have relations genuinely improved between countries that have recently restored the status of their diplomatic relationships the puzzle pieces have definitely shifted once, you know, the El Olo Accords signing the agreement between Qatar and the, the members of the boycotting group, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Bahrain, the UAE. There was very, very mixed progress from those states. So the relationship with Saudi Arabia changed most sharply and most positively and most quickly. And we've even seen things like, for example, the investment of Saudi state entities into Qatari you know, strategic sectors, that kind of thing. Whereas it was really only a few weeks ago that, that Qatar and the UAE re-established their, their diplomatic relationship. And and that's because of the strain from the differences of opinion on, on political ideology, fundamentally. And that's that's going to persist and, and that will be an area that creates tensions in the future. Very difficult to say exactly how and, and when. What sort of issues should investors be thinking about? There's a huge amount of excitement about opportunities that are on offer in parts of the Middle East. But what sort of risks do you think companies need to properly think about, especially if they haven't been well entrenched in parts of the region before? Well, even for those who are very entrenched in the region, it's, it's regulatory and operational risks. The rate of change in, in laws and regulations we're seeing all across the Gulf, uh, you know, in Saudi Arabia's case to to create them because they either didn't or, or they are so old, you know, they're 40 or 50 years old, the legislation that they're having to bring it, you know, bang up to date in order to make sure that they have the right environment for the right investment that they want. But then, you know, the, the UAE, the, you know, we were talking about the, the Gulf the Gulf relationships and, and the competition between Saudi Arabia and the UAE is intensifying. You know, we've had a couple of moments of of, of real dip-up sore points. There, there were new tariffs that were announced summer of 2021 and summer of 2020 that had a real impact on UAE businesses. And we're just going to see more of that. And so what the UAE is doing is also, you know, simultaneously as Saudi is, you know, updating its its regulatory frameworks, is, is doing the same in order to try and maintain its edge in the region as 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 the region, I mean, and not just the Gulf region, but really the whole Middle East's, you know, role as, as the premier business hub. And that extends not just from Dubai, but that extends to Abu Dhabi as as well. And there is a little bit of internal competition so between 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 Dubai and Abu Dhabi that, that is helping drive that, which is is ultimately healthy. But you know, the big question mark is that as Saudi Arabia is is the elephant, is the economic elephant of the region. It is just such a large market. Will it just inevitably swallow? All of that business, don't think it will, ultimately, don't think it will swallow all, all, all of that business because everywhere offers something different. Not all businesses are looking for the same thing. 
you specialize in the Gulf and, and, and work for a whole variety of clients who are experiencing difficulties coming across challenges in the region. What sort of issues tend to most frequently derail or cause challenges for the clients that you're working with in the Gulf? There's two main types. And the first is is the regulatory and the operational. It's just the environments are changing so quickly, finding the personnel to be able to address those correctly. Um, you know, contracting issues are still are still rife because the regulations are changing so quickly that you know no one can really can't really keep up. But but the second is reputational, reputational and integrity issues. Reputation of you know, the Gulf region in in much of the world, really thinking, you know, Europe, the UK and the US is still not particularly positive. And investors are still very mindful of, you know, the political risks that the, re- the region has presented uh, in, in much more recent times. You know, the, the merger of Jamal Khashoggi in Turkey was, was a, a prime example of that, a very, very unfortunate example of that but then also kind of going back several decades and we do know of firms who have operated in the region for a long long time 30 40 years who when it comes to certain governments saying you know or oh, we'd like to offer you this construction contract you know could you t- could you you know take part in the in the tender the firms are saying no because uh, some of those you know regulatory and operational challenges are just too great but then also the reputational burden is just too much and we are all we are seeing a lot of clients coming to us within the region or new to the region, asking us, how do we navigate this reputational challenge? And it is everything from the newspaper test through to making sure that, you know, your your investment or, or you know, other engagement can, can pass your internal ESG criteria, which particularly for our European clients is incredibly important now. So it's 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 going to be a bumpy ride, I think, for, for a lot of companies they are, but they're looking to make sure they get their engagements right from the start. We've been working with a number of them as they look to market entry. Um, the process is slower. They're being a lot more careful. They're being a lot more mindful. They are consulting us, but they're also doing extensive internal consultations to make sure that all of their stakeholders are very comfortable and certain. And we also work with our clients to help make sure that they are doing this the right way, that they are messaging this in the right way internally and externally as well, uh, just to make sure that all of that hard work you know, doesn't come to naught because it turns around that a major shareholder, you know, right before the the signature is made, turns around and says, no, we're not, you know, we don't agree with this. And Eve, which sectors are you seeing the most activity? There are a couple in that, that really come to mind. Uh, manufacturing, and that's everything from car parts and cars and other kind of motor vehicles through to food processing and others. You know, the UAE, Saudi Arabia are real hubs of that and they're going to grow. Uh, they've got huge consumer markets. They're major exporters of that. So there's real opportunity there. But also in the softer sectors, so sports, entertainment, leisure, tourism, Saudi Arabia is completely untapped with that. The UAE is is much, much more established but wants to, to have a much more sophisticated offering and, and, and diversify its offering for what it has been, and, and I'm seeing that living in Dubai. The kind of things that you can do now are very different to what you could do you know, on the weekends or in the evenings, even three or four years ago. People are being quite creative, encouraging people to spend money, to be honest. And so there's, there's a huge amount of opportunity. 
in sports, entertainment, pleasure. And we've seen that as well from the headlines during the transfer window, although I'm not a, I'm yes. not a big football fan. <laughs> but it's uh, but yeah, I mean the the, the center of gravity is is shifting in that sense. We we've seen this before. We saw it in the nineteen seventies. You know, there were a couple of football players from from the UK and Ireland that moved over to the Gulf because there was a similar well wave of money and opportunity. But the difference now is that there is more and and there is well there, there's more there's more at stake if if these kind of diversification plans and. UAE's case, the expansion plans, Qatar's as well, aren't seen through. They, they have to be implemented. So, so there is a little bit more assuredness, I think, for, for, for foreign investors. It seems remiss not to make reference to Israel, given the instability there at the moment and, and the controversy around the nature of the government and what it's trying to do, particularly on, on judicial reform. How is that being perceived by the, by the region? by neighbouring and adversary states, particularly within the region, what sort of impact might what's going on in Israel have more broadly? It's really interesting because it depends which country you're you're looking at. So, for example, the UAE, which has a very, very close economic and, and closer than other states' political relationship with Israel, is handling this by kind of taking a step back, just trying to preserve those economic ties and not engaging too much on a political level because it is aware of the reputational blowback it is getting. Generally putting, you know, those who signed the Abraham Accords, you know, Morocco, Bahrain and others in, in a difficult position. However, the UAE is just trying to, trying to, you know, encourage investment, bilateral investment between the two and, and stay out of the political conversation. But where... Saudi Arabia is choosing to to kind of shape this part of of the regional dynamics to its benefit. There's been a lot of talk in the last couple of weeks, and, and we're aware of you know the move towards in time normalisation of ties between Saudi Arabia and Israel, and and where the kingdom is looking to extract what it wants from from Israel is is by saying, well, we will closen our ties with you. We'll acknowledge, you know, the state of Israel, but but only if you recognise our, our demands for the state of Palestine, you know, under under the Oslo Accords, you know, the nineties and other agreements, and and so the Saudis are being a little bit more. Um, they have a different set of demands for them as a country. It's it's also about seeking or getting what they want from the US as part of this. Developments within Israel have put a number of Gulf states in, in difficult positions with their own with their own populaces. And, and now Saudi Arabia actually has an opportunity to step back from that and, and not quite in, get into so much hot water internally on that. But then that does entirely depend on how they handle the next kind of year or so. I'm not expecting to see any formal normalization of ties, full normalization of ties in the same way that other countries have because there is much more that, that every side in the trilateral negotiations between Saudi Arabia, Israel, and the US is demanding from this. Everyone has quite a high price. And it's it's very, very difficult to see where anyone will concede. You know, for example, that Saudi Arabia apparently wants um, real progress on a Palestinian state that is just a complete non-starter for the Netanyahu government and Netanyahu himself. He's made that consistently clear I mean, throughout his political career last 30 years. Um, and that's become even more entrenched. Five to 10 years from now, will we still be talking about nuclear deals, Iran, Israel, and economic diversification? I think we will be talking about a lot of the same issues that we're talking about now, but in a slightly different way. You know, we've got the title for this, you know, we've talked about internally, what is past is prologue. And, and we go through cycles in this region of, of 
broad shapes of the past happening again. We're kind of experiencing it now with the US potentially putting Marines on ships, and that's a repeat of 1986 to 1988. Back when the Kuwaitis asked, asked for similar resources to protect themselves against Iranian and Iraqi aggression in the Iran-Iraq war. It's, um, we, in the next five to 10 years, we cannot be where we are now. You know, looking at, you know, the economies of Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Qatar, Stasis is not an answer. Progressing with and succeeding in the economic diversification plans, the economic deepening plans, is absolutely necessary. Take Saudi, an often cited statistic, 63% of Saudis are under 30 years old. You, you cannot have an economy that doesn't grow at an enormous scale in order to give them the opportunities. And that's not just initial jobs, it's second jobs. It's you know enough money for their families, houses, pensions, everything. You know, one of one of the things I think in the Gulf is is going to be a real kind of sore point for the next twenty years is is you know how people are not able to establish homes and families like you know their parents and their grandparents' generation did with you know the similar dynamics that we're seeing in in Western economies where you know the the usual stages of life are slowed because of the economic conditions that you're you're living in. We've had huge growth in the region. The difference now between, say, the 70s and then the 90s or early 2000s when there was, you know, similar waves is making sure that, that the plans for the delivery of the projects to deliver economic diversification are, are robust and are, are progressing successfully. We are seeing that with a number of the giga projects. But ultimately, the scale of ambition that there is in the region as a whole means that not everything is going to be is going to be successful because it, it just cannot be statistically. Not, not every project can go brilliantly. So um, one of the questions that that I have is is that is is the gap in in the targets which are enormous versus what is actually going to be achieved by 2030, 2035, 2040, which when all these different Gulf state you know five year plans are coming up for renewal. Is that gap going to be acceptable to the populaces? And are the governments going to be going to be able to bridge those gaps successfully? That's the area of political contestation that has the potential to create new moments and spaces of political instability. You know, the best example of that in, in recent years was, well, it's not recent anymore, 2011 in Egypt. And, you know, thinking of kind of sectorally, the Gulf is still going to be hugely important in the energy sector. It's going to become even more important in the oil and gas space because it is still able to produce the cheapest with the lowest emissions oil and gas. And that's going to become really important. But then also it's going to become, you know, the next big provider of, of hydrogen. The sheer amount of investment in, in this region that is happening in order to create supplies, but also the cost of it means it is not going to be made everywhere. You're not going to have hydrogen, you know, plants popping up in, I don't know, Sierra Leone, Kenya, you need huge financial resources in order to do this. That's not available to the whole world. So I do actually think even as we go through this energy transition, the, the potential for us to find ourselves in a, you know, sort of 1973 or, you know, 2022, you know, moment, but with hydrogen, I think the potential is really quite high. Lots to be watching. Thank you so much, Neve. Really, really nice to have you on the podcast. And I hope you will join us again sometime in the future. Thank you. It's been great. If you liked what you heard on this episode of The Global Insight, make sure to subscribe. And don't forget to check out our other podcasts as well, like Decrypt, featuring our experts from across the world making sense of the cyber and technology issues impacting business. As always, thanks for listening. Listening.